Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a real estate broker caught up in the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008 blows the whistle on corruption inside the Department of Justice. The largest criminal enterprise in the world is the Department of Justice. They break the law routinely and they engage in what I call win-at-all-costs style of litigation. They will just do anything to win a case and suppressing evidence is just one tool and they'll do it if they have to. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Tony Viola was convicted of mortgage fraud back in December 2008. Despite winning his case in his state trial, he was convicted in federal court on the same charges and was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison. He's just been released and he's standing by in Cleveland to discuss the subprime mortgage crisis, which led to the last Great Recession. He'll also reveal suppression of exculpatory evidence in his case, which would have exonerated him. Before that, just a reminder, I'll be filling in for George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM this coming Friday, June the 12th, and I'll be back in the Coast Air Chair hosting Saturday, June 13th. Go to coasttocoastam.com for more information. Also, don't forget to check out the new and improved website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and scroll down to the bottom and click on Inner Sanctum. That's my free monthly newsletter. Register and start receiving Inner Sanctum every month, again, for free. Register at strangeplanet.ca. Tony Viola was a licensed real estate broker in Ohio and Florida. In 1995, at the age of 25, he created Realty Corporation of America in Cleveland, Ohio. Over 15 years, Tony built a thriving enterprise that employed 100 agents. Realty Corp was regarded as a top-tier real estate brokerage, and the company's market share steadily increased aided by Tony's radio and TV appearances about local real estate. At the same time, Realty Corp built one of the largest real estate auction services in Ohio. Then, in 2008, the mortgage bubble burst. The economy crashed. Nearly 10 million homeowners would go on to lose their homes to foreclosure sales in the U.S. between 2006 and 2014. Americans were looking for justice. 
While Wall Street and the banks got off scot-free, federal and state prosecutors went after real estate brokers like Tony Viola and thousands of others who were simply following the no money down rules approved by the banks and the large lenders. Now, more than a decade after the subprime mortgage crisis, one of the individuals caught up in the Obama DOJ's snare explains what caused the crash, how the guilty parties were actually portrayed as the victims, and how thousands of innocent business people were charged, fined, and imprisoned, and how the Department of Justice suppressed exculpatory evidence in their rabid pursuit of convictions. Tony Viola, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, share our story with your listeners. I'm doing well. Tell us a little bit about your career in real estate brokerage. Well, when I was uh, 21 years old, I started a real estate company. I was dating a young lady and we decided to buy some houses in Cleveland that were very inexpensive. And we flipped them and sold them and we started meeting other investors in the greater Cleveland area. It turned out we had more sales skills than money. So we sort of turned our company into a sales and marketing organization and we became licensed real estate salespeople, and we built a company in Cleveland. In between 2003, 2007, uh, which would lead up to this uh, great recession, the subprime mortgage crisis, trillions of dollars, investment dollars, flooding the US real estate market. Tell me about what happened as a result of that. Well, first of all, uh, quite a bit of money was made in the real estate market. After 9-11, the Federal Reserve had lowered the interest rates and the government told everyone to go out and spend money. And that's what happened. There was a lot of new development, a lot of construction. People were buying houses. They were flipping them. They were generating uh, revenue from their rental income. And it was a boom. Lenders kept coming up with new products. Uh, You could buy more houses. You didn't need a down payment. You didn't need to have credit. And people saw other people getting rich and wanted to jump into the market and either buy a house instead of rent or build rental properties. And so the market was flooded with lenders. The banks figured out a way to separate the risk of the loan from making the loan. So they would loan money and then sell it off on Wall Street and let someone else worry later on if the customer didn't pay. And we hear about these predatory loan uh, practices where people would be given loans, even though, let's say, for example, uh, the lender knew that the the main employer in that town was about to shut down in three months, and these people would have no hope in hell of making their payments. Well, you actually had two issues. One is you had lenders that were actually making up documents inside the bank to force these folks to qualify. People would actually bring their pay stubs in, but they would go on some other loan product where they were just supposedly making much more money than they were. And the other thing the banks were doing was charging people quite a lot of prepayment penalties and high interest expenses. And instead of giving customers a fixed rate, they would be on variable rate loans. So there was a lot of manipulation of the loan products themselves to jack up the price, the yield, the um, interest rates, which made a lot of people Uh, thought they were going to be successful in real estate, but when they got their payment coupon book, uh, they find out that their rent doesn't even meet the payments. So you had a lot of bad behavior by banks in the rush to make these loans and resell them on Wall Street. So you had the lenders, you also had Fannie Mae, this quasi-government entity that was purchasing these mortgages from the banks. Tell me a little bit more about Fannie Mae and, and how they operate. 
Well, Fannie Mae doesn't loan money directly to customers. What they did is they supercharged the loan market because in the olden days, banks would loan money and there was, there was a limit to what they could loan, just like if you were loaning me money. But if you could sell the loan to somebody and then replenish your coffers and just continue to make loans and charge fees for originating the loans, that became a business model in itself. So these loans were purchased on Wall Street, and then the bank had more money to put back into mortgages. And so the amount of mortgage dollars that were in the market chasing loans had just exponentially increased, while at the same time, in that earlier example, you're making a loan, but you don't have the risk because you, you made a profit and sold it off to somebody else. So you're just making fees by generating the loans, and you don't really care what happens after you make the loan. That's what happened, and that's what happened with Fannie Mae in the marketplace. And so you have all of these millions and millions of these dodgy mortgages, and they're not being paid. People are underwater. And so what happens as a result of that? Well, the music stopped. I mean, what happened was a lot of people speculated. They bought property and they thought they could flip it in a year or two at a profit. Well, all of a sudden, some of the loans started going bad, and then the music stops. There's no longer massive amounts of loans available, and the economy is weakening, and people are going into foreclosures, and the banks get bailed out. The government says, hey, uh, we need banks. Your ATM card has to work. Uh, we need banks to loan money to small businesses. We've got to bail these guys out. It's going to help the economy in the long run, so we're going to bail out the banks. And uh, that was uh, TARP, the Toxic Asset Relief Program. How does this all intersect with Tony Viola and the Realty Corporation of America? How did you get caught up in this snare? Well, I was shocked to be caught up, but uh, the FBI and a multi-jurisdictional task force raided our company one day. They came in with guns. They... uh, uh, videoed the thing live. It was breaking news on all the local and even national TV. It was the nation's largest mortgage fraud case. And the FBI was in our office with guns looking for mortgage files. Of course, we're not a mortgage company. We're a real estate brokerage operation that uh, sold property and auctioned property and engaged in property management. So we were uh, just shocked that we were blamed uh, and then subsequently indicted as part of the nation's largest mortgage fraud case. And the government alleged that I stole $46 million uh, by orchestrating a scheme to trick banks into making no money down mortgage loans. Which is odd because the no money down was the new rule. So the, the banks are being cast here as the victims. You're just following, yes, the you're following the new rules, right? Correct. The government claimed that we tricked the banks into making loans. Now, at the day my office was raided, I went down and told the news media this was the biggest bunch of rubbish that's ever been perpetrated on the American public, that we didn't trick any banks into making any loans. And in fact, it's like saying I tricked Starbucks into making a coffee or McDonald's into selling hamburgers. The banks advertised these loan products on TV, on their websites. They came to our offices. They promoted them. People used to come to us. The customers would say, hey, I heard about this loan product. I want to buy a house, no money down. We advertised it openly. If we thought there was anything wrong with it, we wouldn't have been running TV commercials and radio commercials about how to buy real estate this way. So we never thought we were doing anything wrong. And when we found out that the government, the Justice Department, was claiming that the banks were duped into making these loans, I thought it was absolutely preposterous. So this was, you mentioned the Justice Department, Eric Holder, then Attorney General. It was called Operation Stolen Dreams, and they were funneling federal grant money to various jurisdictions to set up these local task force. So that we had the, in Cleveland, we had the Cayuga County Mortgage Fraud Task Force. 
and their job Correct. was to prosecute mortgage fraud. And so the money is flowing into these local task forces. They're looking for scalps. Correct. They love the media attention. They couldn't get enough of it. They had multiple press conferences in front of my office. I was actually indicted three times. I was actually indicted in federal court. Then I was indicted in state court. And then I was indicted a third time in state court on the eve of the federal trial. They made YouTube videos. They issued press releases. They had multiple press conferences. The prosecutors couldn't get enough of telling the public, if your house went down in value, it's this Tony guy over here. He's the one who's responsible. He's the one who tricked these banks into making these loans. This is why there are foreclosures. And the federal grant money lubricated all of these agencies, the FBI and these local police departments, and they loved our case. They loved it because there's no violent criminals. They're not exactly afraid for their lives, and they would just sit in their office and interview people, and um, they were getting grant money to just do this. This is part of the whole mass incarceration system where there's money in these indictments and money in these detectives sitting around going through people's files, mortgage files, and saying, wait a minute, there's a problem here. And you are one of what, about 3,000 local realtors that were charged? Yeah, this task force in, in, in indicted, and there's one in every city, by the way, or every major city across the country. They investigated all kinds of folks. And if you start with the premise that the bank is an innocent victim, anybody in a real estate transaction becomes a criminal. The seller, the buyer, the appraiser, the loan officer, the real estate company, everybody becomes a criminal. So the government starts with this theory that the bank is an innocent victim and they were duped, they were tricked into making the loans. And so we can investigate whoever we want in this previous chain of anybody who was involved in this transaction. And so local realtors that were like you, who were caught up in this, were forced to, well, you were indicted. You had the option to what? To pay restitution? Right. The, 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 most people said you can't win. You have no chance especially with the public uh, mad at everybody because of the Great Recession. And most people pled guilty. They didn't have the money for a law firm to go to trial. They are afraid of the Justice Department. And so a lot of times the prosecutors said, and they did this a couple of our employees, well, you can just plead guilty and you can just pay some restitution to the innocent bank and um, we'll put you on probation and uh, then we'll just dismiss the case later or we'll sentence you to a suspended jail sentence of 60 days. And so hundreds of people just said, it's not worth it. We're just going to plead guilty and, and just move on with our life. So what happened to all of these payments of forfeiture and, and restitution? Where did that money go? Well, that's a, that's a great question. The government played a double game. First, they blamed us for tricking the banks into making these no money down loans. Then later, you may recall, Richard, that there were these multi-billion dollar lender settlements where J.P. Morgan paid 10 or $20 billion to, uh, and said, we're sorry, we made some bad loans. And so the government portrayed the same banks on the same transactions as innocent victims. So I tricked them. So I have to pay restitution for money they lost. But they also later alleged that the banks were knowingly making all these zany loans and lying when they sold them off on Wall Street. So the bank had to pay the people that bought the loans. So the net result was the government fabricated victims in these cases and the restitution, as far as we can tell, and our investigative team can tell, has never been sent to the bank. The task force collected upwards of $20 million and we have a ledger of what they're actually doing with the money and they're not sending it to the banks. They're using it to buy 
airline tickets for prosecutors and pay for hotel rooms and uh, uh, buy computers and police cars and so forth. But they're not actually remitting the money to the supposed victim in these cases. So you refused uh, to plead guilty and you demanded a jury trial. What was the thinking there? You, you were confident that you, you could win? Well, I guess I was naive in thinking that court was fair. So that is one mistake that I made. And it's very scary when you see a document that says United States of America versus Tony Viola, because it really is just that. It's the power of the country and every resource that the government can bear to come down on you to make sure that you lose in court. And the federal prosecutor, Mark Bennett, he'd walk into court with a very self-righteous attitude, and he would say, Mark Bennett for the United States. So on behalf of the people, he's prosecuting me. So it was very scary, but I did not trick any banks into making any no money down mortgage loans. And I was not going to plead guilty. And I'm not saying that I'm right. Uh, And many people said, Tony, you should just forget it. But I wasn't going to do it. I didn't own mortgage companies and title companies that the government said I owned in these indictments. And I don't think we did anything wrong. I had an attorney who was advising us the whole time. He said our actions were legal. And I didn't really steal $46 million. Um, And if I did, by the way, these banks would have sued me or tried to get some of the money back. So the whole thing to me was ridiculous. And I said, well, we're just going to go to court and go to trial because I wasn't going to stand in front of a judge and plead guilty to something I didn't do. So you were charged both federally and at the state level. Correct. The prosecutors claimed, you mentioned these mortgage companies, they claimed that you owned or controlled Family Title Services and Transcontinental Lending Group. Correct. Tell me about these companies. Why do they try and saddle you with these? Well, apparently this government informant told the government that Tony was at this title company where there was uh, improper actions going on. But the thing is, there was another guy named Tony. It wasn't Tony Viola. And I was shocked that the government was so sloppy that they had these fundamental errors in the indictments. Um, that they didn't know what companies I owned. And so initially, a big part of our defense was to say, well, uh, let's get these computers because the government went to 12 companies and raided 12 places. Let's get the family title computers and let's have a forensic accountant go through and testify that I never got a penny. So if there's something going wrong there, I don't know why I would be indicted. Um, So that was our initial defense. The government found out that that was our initial defense, and they then claimed that they lost the computers from the companies I didn't own and control. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Lost evidence. Lost 302. Yes, they lost evidence. They claimed to lose evidence that they seized in televised raids on national television, but they said that they didn't know where it went and uh, that they regretted any inconvenience. Cat Clover another real estate investor Mm -hmm. was caught up in this and she was convinced to plead guilty to conspire with you in exchange for leniency. So is she the one that claimed that you controlled or owned family title services? I believe she thought that erroneously and she then later discovered that that was incorrect. In fact, there's litigation right now. She emailed the federal prosecutor. We've never seen these emails, but we're in litigation right now to get them. She emailed the federal prosecutor and told him that this was a mistake, that I didn't own transcontinental lending and that I didn't actually own family title. And apparently he just told her, I don't want to hear about this anymore. This is what you're pleading guilty to. And that's the end of it. And at the first trial, she committed perjury during the trial itself. 
and later felt bad about what she was doing and asked to be put back on the stand to correct her false testimony. But the federal prosecutors said no, that it was in the interest of justice to allow her false testimony to stand. And then the fast forward to the second trial, she recanted this and admitted that this was wrong, that she pled guilty to conspiring with me, but her guilty plea was wrong, that I never had anything to do with these companies. Why were they so nervous about you taking this trial to jury? Well, I think they figured out that I didn't own the companies that they said I owned in the indictment. And I think they were surprised that so many people were so upset that I was being the subject of this mortgage fraud case. My employees and our colleagues in the business and my family and friends knew what companies I owned, and they were willing to come forward and tell the government that this is just nonsense, that you guys made a mistake. This guy doesn't own these companies. And I think part of the problem was I was very vocal. I told them I was not pleading guilty. And, you know, the lawyers said, Tony, this is not how it goes. You know, they're very upset. And I said, they're upset. They're ruining my business. Everything I worked for my entire life is being destroyed. And you're telling me that their feelings are hurt. They refused to consider the possibility that I didn't own these companies. They said it. And that was the end of it. These folks don't change their mind. They go on TV and say something and they're going to do anything. And I mean anything to win this case after the media circus. They just weren't willing to dismiss the case or amend the charges or even consider evidence that we wanted to present to them. They just wouldn't do it. One of the unfortunate legacies of the Obama administration was the politicizing of various government agencies like the IRS, the State Department, and, well, certainly the Justice Department. I'm wondering whether these task forces were likewise politicized, controlled by the Democratic machine, and had you somehow run afoul somewhere along the lines of that democratic machine? It's possible. It's speculative to say, is that something that's true or not? What I've also found, though, is that the permanent bureaucracy or the deep state, if you want to call it that, outlasts all these administrations. And, you know, um, 10 years later, all these people are in the same jobs they were 10 years ago, these prosecutors, these investigators, and so I think that there's, I think what happened was this was the flavor of the month. We're going to do mortgage fraud now. And so the, you know, that's a big bureaucracy and someone says, let's go do it. And so everyone says, okay. So then they just sort of gear up to do this and the bank's an innocent victim across the country and all these realtors get charged. And so I think this was a sort of a template, a copy and paste template, but the law enforcement community loved it because it kept them busy and they could inv interview all these people and ask them. And uh, most of these people were nonviolent, had no criminal histories. And so, again, they like sitting in their air conditioned offices asking people about why they bought a rental house. So there's a lot of shenanigans here with the with the politics and the, the whole and then the, just the eagerness to be on TV. The prosecutors loved it. I mean, until I until the tables turned. But initially, they loved being on television in front of our office. It was like catnip to them to be telling the public that they were doing something about the mortgage crisis and the foreclosures. And who are the prosecutors in Cuyahoga County? Well, Dan Caceres is, was the state prosecutor, and he headed up what was called the economic crimes part of the state prosecution. And Mark Bennett led the federal prosecution along with the FBI agent named Jeff Kasuf. And these, these prosecutors worked together through this task force. And it turns out that the government used this task force to play games. They would shift evidence around between jurisdictions and locations. The federal government would have the state detective interview people first. 
And if someone told the state guy that Tony's all right, he's innocent, they would say thank you. And they would never send that witness to the federal office so the feds could plead ignorance to it. The way these task forces run and are operated is very frightening because it lets each prosecutor blame a bureaucracy if there's any problems. And it sort of creates a mechanism to shift evidence around and play games with the evidence. You were interviewed by the FBI. They would have taken copious notes. The 302s, as we've come to know them now, uh, made very famous in the Michael Flynn case. So tell me how those interviews with the FBI went and what was included in those 302s. Well, first of all, no member of the public should ever agree to an interview with the FBI unless they record it, because it's a bunch of nonsense. The FBI agent sits there and takes notes And what you say may or may not be transcribed in his notes that are then typed up into some interviews. So first of all, most people want to do the right thing and want to be helpful. And if law enforcement says, hey, we need your help, just like General Flynn. Um, And then but but the FBI is engages in underhanded tactics. And I had about 30 witnesses that said that their FBI 302 did not reflect what they say. So first and foremost, it's designed for misconduct because this idea of taking notes like it's 1962 is ridiculous and you should record your interview with the FBI and you should have a lawyer there. That's number one. Number two, I really wasn't interviewed by the FBI. They didn't really want to talk to me because they said I was the target of the investigation and they had decided that I was a crook and they weren't going to consider anything else. But the FBI did interview people in our case, including the bank. And one of the lender executives was very concerned about this. You know, he told the government that they didn't lose any money on these loans, that a lot of these properties had been subsequently resold. Some were still owned by people. They were paying on the loans. Um, My pre-sentence investigation confirms that the bank in my case said it didn't lose money, the the main lender. So he also told the government that they allowed these loans, that the employees of the bank were permitted to sign off on no money down cash back loans if it made business sense. And they, they had loan products that uh, were available to people. This destroys the theory of the case. The government's theory is that the bank doesn't allow these. Therefore, if someone got a no money down loan, there's fraud because the bank was tricked. But the lender executive, a guy named Steve Newcomb, he comes into Cleveland and he tells the FBI and Caceres and Mark Bennett, no, actually, we allow these loans and going through some of these files. It looks like we signed off on these uh, loan applications on these specific transactions in Tony's case. So he was hesitant to testify in court. But the government never produced 302 before the federal trial because it would it just basically destroyed their case and it it didn't comport with their theory. So they suppressed that before the first trial. Isn't suppressing exculpatory evidence against the law? Yes, but the largest criminal enterprise in the world is the Department of Justice. They break the law routinely and they engage in what I call win at all costs style of litigation. They will just do anything to win a case. And suppressing evidence is just one tool in the golf club, and they'll do it if they have to. And if they do it, well, they did it in my case, and they still haven't been held accountable for it. And General Flynn's a very high profile case, but, but there's many, many cases that are under the radar that don't have the media coverage. And in my experience, the government plays games with evidence. We don't have what's called open file discovery. The prosecutor gets to decide what is exculpatory and what isn't. And it's ridiculous because you don't know what the defense theory is or what the defense is planning to present at trial. So the prosecutor gets to decide. And generally, 
courts of appeals uphold the prosecutor's decision. And so there's something called harmless error. Well, maybe it could have been produced before trial, but it wouldn't have made a difference. So the courts have actually sort of sanctified the illegal withholding of evidence in America by calling it something called harmless error by saying, well, even if it was produced, it wouldn't have mattered. Of course, my case is different because there's two trials. So there's actually no need to speculate on what would have happened if the 302 came into the first one. The state trial, you mean? Correct. We had it for the second trial, not the first trial. Right. So let's talk about the office manager with the uh, the Cuyahoga County Task Force, Don Pacella. My friends started having happy hours to show support, and we did little fundraisers to raise money for legal fees, and people were just saying, hey, Tony, hang in there. And we had well over 100 employees and, and a lot of colleagues in the business, and people were really upset about what was going on. And so I was very fortunate to have a great amount of support. So Dawn came to one of these uh, events and said, hey, Tony, listen, I'm working with these other lawyers on similar cases. We should share information. I've got some stuff on these banks that they were promoting these loans. And, um, you know, maybe we could team up. And I said, well, sure, that sounds great. And um, then she said, you know, you need a theory of the case. When you go on TV and say you're innocent, you need to explain why. How are you innocent? Is the government wrong? Um, can you, you have to explain that and expound on that. And she said, that's the building block of your defense. You, you explain why you're innocent, and then you find evidence that supports what you're doing. And I said, my gosh, this girl is brilliant. Um, and my friends liked her because she was out with us at these happy hours, and she was a fun, bubbly person. She was very beautiful. And we started meeting, and she would share some ideas, and I would share some ideas of what we were working on. And then I got an evidence disc from the government with thousands of pages of documents on it. And I didn't know what to do. My lawyer said, here, see what you make of it. And I wouldn't, wasn't sure. I was kind of overwhelmed. And I thought, wonder if I should call Dawn and ask. So I did. And she said, oh, yeah, Tony, you got to organize those um, by each count in your case and find out what documents go to each count and then find which documents support your theory of the case that you're saying you're innocent. So what documents in there might show that the bank signed off on the loans or that there was no scam or you disclosed that people were buying the houses with no money down. And so she came to my office and sort of helped me organize the evidence part of my case. So I thought she was helpful to me and my friends really liked her and she, we just became friends. We went out sometimes and she would help me with ideas about the case. So meanwhile, she's, again, she's posing as this graduate student, but she's the the task force's office manager. So she's she's right. playing the confidence game. She even donates to your your uh, your defense fund. Right. This went on for, for years. Uh, I was in uh, rated. My company was rated in 08 and the federal trial didn't begin until uh, the spring of 2011, because when the government lost the computers, it delayed the case significantly. So I spent maybe about two and a half years with uh, over time thinking that Dawn was my friend. It turns out that the government became alarmed that I wouldn't plead guilty and that I kept telling the news media that I'm not pleading guilty. I don't own mortgage companies. I didn't trick banks into making no money down loans. And the media kind of picked it up because it was so unusual to have a defendant say the government is wrong and should dismiss this case immediately and issue an apology. It was basically what I kept saying. So they got nervous when they figured out that I didn't really own these companies. And so they were looking to figure out what our defense trial strategy was. Now, this is completely illegal. I can't bug the U.S. attorney's office before trial to see what they're talking about uh, to their informants and their government witnesses. But they essentially did this to me. And so Dawn 
was a law enforcement uh, official through this task force that was federally funded. So she's a, probably a federal agent basically conducting an interview after I'm indicted without my lawyer present, which is completely illegal. She makes these voice recordings and the prosecutors love listening to them. Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres find out that we were going to initially have a defense of a forensic accounting guy that goes through the computers and says, I didn't get any money. And then poof, the computers disappear. I mean, the government acted on the information that Dawn brought them and they basically figured out what our defense strategy was and figured out how to overcome it by either suppressing or hiding evidence or playing games with these computers. But it's, so Dawn uh, damaged our defense. And at a certain point, though, Dawn is told in no uncertain terms by one of her colleagues that what she's doing, spying on you, the defendant, is illegal. Right. Dawn was not an undercover officer. She was a, an office lady who knew a lot about evidence and how to assemble evidence in criminal cases. She made the government's trial exhibits and she was working with FBI agents and prosecutors, but she was not an undercover officer. When they asked her to do this, she was a very nice, kind person. And her bosses asked her, and this task force job was a plum assignment. She was studied criminal justice. And, and so she was willing to do it because they told her it was important, but she started having guilty feelings. And then one of her colleagues says, you can't do that. That's illegal. An undercover cop said he wasn't going to do it because it was illegal. They took advantage of you. you I didn't know you were doing that. You needed, you can't do that. You're going to get yourself into trouble. And was she also aware of the, the 302s that, where the bankers had admitted that the, what she did, what, what you did was entirely above board? Yes, she was in a lot of the meetings as a note taker for the prosecutors. And she also was in charge of the evidence in these cases. She scanned in documents. She had uh, helped prepare discovery for the defense, not just for my case, but for all kinds of cases and helped the prosecutors prepare for trial. This is all in her job description that we've obtained subsequently. So the answer is she was aware and she started becoming alarmed, not only about this illegal wearing the wire and recording the defense trial strategy, but also this games going on at the task force. And the U.S. attorney in Cleveland shifted evidence like these 302s from their office to the task force location. Well, she happened to be there and she started copying it and taking it with her home. And at some point, you know, she comes forward and tells me, listen, uh, they've been hiding evidence. You're innocent. And I'm like, really, where is this evidence? And she's like, oh, I have it. So I'm like, well, you know, it would be really nice if I could get that. And then she ends up giving me that evidence. She, she also confronted uh, the prosecutor, Dan Caceres, with this information, right. correct? Right, well, that's well, correct. She basically... I'm sorry. Just no. What, what what was his reaction? Do we know? Yes, he blew his top. He told her that uh, you're my secretary. You don't ask questions like that. Your job is to do what I say. Uh, I'm the senior official here. People report to me. Uh, don't go beyond your pay grade. If I tell you to do something, you do it. And if I tell you not to, then you don't. But she was very rattled by that FBI 302 because that bank interview was about a month and a half before the first trial. And she said, I believe this case should be dismissed. I don't understand why we're going after this guy so hard when the bank just came in and said that they authorized these loans and we have all these documents from the bank that they signed off on this stuff. This guy is innocent. What are we doing? And she was idealistic about justice. And Caceres had been on TV saying I was this bad guy. And Mark Bennett loved getting the trial strategy. So they decided to just tell her, listen, knock it off. 
More of my conversation with Tony Viola when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Let's say you go to your local coffee shop for a latte and you decide to check your email, your social media accounts, maybe browse a few media stories. What's the harm? Well, I'm sure the business owners feel they're providing you with a valuable service. The problem is, the chances are the security on these networks is lax or even non-existent. So what do you do? There are literally hundreds of virtual private networks to choose from. Simple. Proton VPN offers a private and trusted solution. Proton VPN is fast, reliable, and stable, and you can easily connect in over 50 countries. Proton VPN is based in Switzerland, home of the world's strictest privacy laws. Proton VPN is open sourced, which means more flexibility for users, and it's independently audited. And here's the part I really like Proton VPN is funded by its community of users. That means you and me. So there is zero revenue from advertising. They really do live by their philosophy people over profits. So the next time you're at a coffee shop or the airport and you're using public Wi Fi, looking to stream your favorite movie or secure your traffic, trust Proton VPN. Transparent, reliable, and secure. Click on the Proton VPN link in my episode notes or go to protonvpn.com slash unlimited. Protonvpn.com slash unlimited and you'll get 34% off Proton VPN's two-year plan. Plus, there's a 30 days back money guarantee. Protect yourself online. Get Proton VPN. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again and what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Former real estate broker Tony Viola is here, just newly released from federal prison. He's discussing the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008 and how he was imprisoned for nearly a decade for a crime he insists he did not commit. Just before the break, we were discussing the young office manager, Don... Pacella, who worked for the local prosecutor in Cleveland, and how she went undercover and spied on Viola after gaining his confidence. Now, spying on the defendant is illegal. Uh, once she found out from a colleague what she was doing was illegal, she confronted the prosecutor. A, a quick aside, but perhaps very important, Pacella also confronted Caceres, the prosecutor in this case, about a possible romantic a relationship with one of the key witnesses against you. Right. What happened was Catherine Clover started spending a surprising amount of time in the prosecutor's office. She actually became a professional witness for this task force and for Mark Bennett. She would go into the grand jury and she would say, well, I'm sort of an expert at this. I bought some of these houses and some of these documents are dummied up and there's some fraud here. And a whole bunch of people were indicted because of Catherine Clover's testimony. And uh, Dawn and other people in the prosecutor's office were started getting curious of why Dan Caceres was leaving the office with Catherine Clover. There was a scene at a baseball game where one of the other government witnesses named Lucas Fairfield and his attorney, Marcus Sedotti, became aware that Caceres took uh, Catherine Clover to a Cleveland Indians game. And there was rumors going on, and there was also a lot of emails between Clover and Caceres, and Dawn had seen some of these. Remember, she's essentially his administrative assistant as well as running the task force office, and she becomes aware that there's these crazy emails between them. And so she's like, what is going on here? 
remember, Dawn was an idealist. She was very young and believed in justice and believed in doing the right thing. And she couldn't believe what she was seeing. And Caceres blew his top again and basically said, it's none of your business. Don't ever ask me about that again. This uh, Clover Caceres romantic relationship is the talk of the Cleveland legal communities. It's never made it into the press but people know about it. It's sort of common knowledge. It went on for a number of years. And Clover's ex-husband and boyfriend have also either seen these emails between the prosecutor and Clover or are aware of the romantic relationship that they had. So uh, Dawn, once the, considered the rising star in, in the prosecutor's office, is now being um, condemned as uh, as a drinker, as a drunk, really, right? A, a troublemaker and a drunk. Right. All of a sudden, before she was uh, uh, credible enough and smart enough to go undercover and wear a wire and handle all the evidence and all these thousand cases that the government is prosecuting, but then later she's an unreliable person and she's not to be trusted. I must say, though, in all honesty, this this bothered her greatly. She felt terrible that she wore a wire. She blamed me going to jail on her, which it was not her fault, but she was very upset about what she had seen. And I have to say, these prosecutors really crushed her spirit because she wanted to do a good job and she was very idealistic. And the way she was treated, it was very hurtful to her. She was very wounded by the way she was treated like this. She poured her heart and soul into her job and then was treated just terribly by these people. So this is uh, April 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. And so she she comes to you and she she wants to she wants to make it up. Uh, so she promises that she will testify as a whistleblower on your behalf. This is in your in the state trial, correct? Correct. So I lost the federal trial, but I was still on bond awaiting federal sentencing. And she calls me and she's like, Tony, we have to talk. There's something going on that's really important. And she sounded very upset. And we got together. And the first time she couldn't even tell me she was so upset about it. And then the second time she finally got it out. She's like, I actually wrote this out on a piece of paper. Please don't interrupt me. And she sort of gave this confession that she had worn a wire and played these tapes for Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres and that the government, the FBI agents knew who our defense witnesses were and started intimidating people and threatening them if they testify in our case, and that she said that she was able to put her hands on this 302 and some of these lender documents that the banks had signed off on the loans. And she said, look, I'm going to help you, but if we just file these documents in federal court, everyone's going to want to know where you got them. The judge may seal them. You need to use these at a second trial. And if you do that, I will testify for you. She's also brilliant. Dawn said something very profound. She said, Tony, Nobody's going to care about government misconduct if you're guilty. So if you blow up the World Trade Center, but the search warrant is screwed up or something, nobody cares because you're guilty. She said, we can prove that you're innocent. Forget reasonable doubt. We can actually, in a, in a paperwork case like this, we can prove that you're innocent. And by the way, Tony, we can team up and prove that everybody prosecuted by the task force or almost everybody is innocent because the banks weren't tricked. In other words, Richard, this isn't like a DNA case where, aha, Tony didn't rape the girl. This documentary proof with this 302, this exonerates virtually everybody, all these real estate agents and property sellers, because there is no fraud if the bank knew the loans were no money down and made them anyway. There was no tricking banks. So she wanted to move on with her life by clearing up this misconduct. She didn't want to be a part of it. She didn't want to see people hurt. She was 
concerned about this restitution scam even back then when people are paying money and it's not going to the banks. So we made an agreement. She's going to help me win the trial and I'm going to help her undo all of the task force's cases. And the way we're going to win that trial is number one, prove innocence. Then we talk about the government misconduct in the case. Right. Now, let me just back up for a moment because you, you did, sure. lo- you did lose the, 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 uh, the federal case. Correct. Uh, partially because that expulpatory, expulpatory uh, evidence, the 302s was not right. presented. Uh, what was the sentence? Uh, I was given 12 and a half years in jail and a restitution amount of almost $3 million that I had to repay to these supposed banks that I lost, that lost money because of me. And, and I had zero, zero criminal history. I'd never been in trouble in my life. And I got almost 13 years in jail for tricking banks into making no money down mortgage loans. And you're sent directly to jail, right? Without passing go. Correct. I was immediately remanded into custody and hauled away while the U.S. attorney, a guy named Stephen Dettelback, is high-fiving Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres. These prosecutors just reveled in the destruction of someone's life and their business. They just were ecstatic. It was like the uh, Cleveland the Browns won the Super Bowl or something. I'd never seen people more happy in my life, these prosecutors, just fist bumping and high-fiving. About um, 35 of them in the back of the courtroom, this task force, when I was hauled away to federal jail. That was January 5th of 12. And, and so you're looking at 13 years. Meanwhile, you have no lawyer and you have to prepare for your state trial. That... Well, Dawn was concerned that if I had a lawyer, I would lose. She said, if you have a lawyer, you will lose, even though I'm giving you the proof of your innocence, because these lawyers love Dan Caceres. These defense lawyers are in the bag with the prosecutors. You're not going to be able to get this evidence presented. The lawyers are going to tell the prosecutor you have it. These lawyers cut deals with Dan Caceres all day. They go out to dinner with him. Mark Bennett goes to, uh, uh, you know, brunch and lunch and dinner with all these defense lawyers. They're all, it's all a cabal and you have no chance. She said, you have to prove the case yourself. And I said, Don, I, I can't. I'm not a lawyer. I can't do it. And she said, well, you're a sales guy. You can convince 12 jurors just like you convince people to um, have you manage their apartment building and I'll help you. I made the exhibits for the government. I can make your exhibits. I can write the questions. I can help you. And she convinced me that we could do it. So before I was put in jail, we basically did a couple of days of intense trial preparation. And I had a a big stack of folders that I gave my friends. And I said, uh, you got to bring them down to the court when I get put on trial the second time. And they did. So she's now, uh, added to your witness list when uh, right. so this is in January now 2012 when when is right. the state trial supposed to happen it starts in in February of 2012 and it starts right up basically I'm thrown in jail and soon after we got another trial starting and are you confident that if the state if you win at the state level that that might impact the federal sentencing It was identical charges prosecuted by the same people. Mark Bennett was at the state trial and the federal trial. Dan Caceres was at the state and federal trial. The FBI agent, Jeff Kasuf, was at both. Arvin Clara, the detective, was at both. I felt that if I proved that I was innocent at the second trial, that yes, that the federal government would would have no choice but to at least give me a hearing in federal court so I could present the same proof of my innocence that was not produced before the first trial, but that Dawn provided me before the second trial. So uh, everything is riding on this, and it, it, thanks to Dawn, in large measure, it's looking pretty positive, right? Yeah, I would not have won the second trial without Dawn. She said, look, 
the prosecutors lock themselves into a false narrative. We can disprove their theory. These banks aren't victims. We can disprove their facts and we can go through each count sort of grinding it out and saying, well, count one, that's five years in jail. But on this page, you guys signed off on the no money down, right? So that's a not guilty and just so forth. So she said that we can basically use the government's own documents to destroy their case and to prove actual innocence. And we did, because throughout the second trial, we kept having evidence that Dan Caceres and Mark Bennett said doesn't exist. They both put in writing that there was no 302, and yet I had the 302. And this continued. We also found that the great Catherine Clover recanted her federal court testimony because I had certain documents that I could confront her with. So the trial was going extremely well. The government's case was completely disproved, and the misconduct that the government was committing throughout this case was exposed. That was the other key point. We had these prosecutors on the record saying there is no 302. The banks don't allow these loans. We don't have documents from the bank about their loan programs. But we had all of that thanks to Dawn, who had access to it because she was the office manager of the task force. Sadly, uh, Dawn did not testify on your behalf. Tell me why. Well, the government became aware that something was up, right? Because I got all these documents they say don't exist. And I believe they started suspecting that it was Dawn. But halfway through the trial, when I turned my witness list in, my final witness list, and her name was on there, they became very alarmed because she was very dangerous to Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres. She knew what was going on. She'd worked there for a number of years. The FBI agent Kasuf and Arvin Klar and a detective named Don Cleland went to her apartment and threatened her. They told her to leave town. Uh, They told her not to testify. She would be indicted. They said she was going to be indicted for providing me documents and FBI reports that she was going to go to federal jail. She left her apartment and stayed with her parents and her family members to try to get away from these people. But they were relentless and they scared. They really scared the death out of this poor girl. The uh, presiding judge in the case, Judge Gall, he he um, well, tell me about Judge Gall a little bit. What, what can you tell me about him? Well, I think Judge Gall assumed I was guilty in the beginning. And he said, uh, Tony, uh, you just got convicted in federal court and we're going to have a two month trial here on the same charges you just lost. He said, look, if you're guilty, you know, I'll entertain a guilty plea and, you know, maybe even give you a concurrent sentence. I just don't really think you should go to trial unless you've got some serious uh, defense to present. And I said, I understand, Your Honor, I can't plead guilty. I'm innocent and I'm going to prove I'm innocent. I'm not talking reasonable doubt. And he said, "Okay," Um, but he was very skeptical. But as the trial unfolded and he kept seeing these prosecutors caught with their pants down, lying to his face about evidence, he became alarmed. The FBI agent refused to testify. He was a defense witness, believe it or not, Agent Kasuf, because I wanted him to talk about his uh, misconduct and he wouldn't testify. I wanted the federal probation officer to testify, but where is this $46 million that I stole? But they wouldn't do it. And so Judge Gall was very upset with, with these uh, law enforcement people that they weren't willing to come into court, yet the jurors were supposed to take two months off of their jobs and away from their families to hear this case. So he became uh, convinced that, wait a minute, this guy might be innocent. And then with the documents, I think he concluded that I was innocent. He certainly told the jurors after he agreed with their verdict. Dawn called Judge Gall and said that he uh, that she was afraid and that um, she was very uh, concerned that if she came in, something bad would happen to her. And Judge Gall issued an order that she must appear. She was served a defense subpoena. 
She knew me personally. She had personal knowledge relevant to the case. And as someone with a criminal justice background and who'd worked for law enforcement for a number of years, um, you know, he said, you know what a subpoena is. You've got to come in and, and tell the, you know, tell what you're going to tell. And so he ordered her to come in and we, and I talked to her the day before and she said she was coming in. She wanted to um, become a whistleblower. She said that the government already knew that she gave me this evidence and she was planning on testifying that morning that she was scheduled to appear. She didn't. And I thought, well, maybe something, maybe she decided that it wasn't necessary. I, I wasn't sure we were looking for her. We put the, the last witness off for a little bit. And then finally, Judge Gall said, look, you guys got to go to closing statements. And then we made the closing statements and the trial concluded without her. As the jury was deliberating, I was called back into court and Judge Gall announced that Dawn was found dead in her apartment by her father shortly after her scheduled testimony. Uh, how this is, and this is the first time you've heard heard about it. What was your reaction? Well, the transcript shows I had I was in complete shock. I was absolutely beside myself. Dawn was my friend. I admired her. She was courageous to help me. She was brilliant. Um, she knew how to win these cases. Uh, lawyers didn't know how to fight these mortgage cases, but she did. I was absolutely beside myself. I couldn't believe it. Now, remember, during that trial, I was in jail. So I would go to trial in the day and go to a jail cell at night. And so when tragedies happen and you're in prison, it's sort of hard to explain because you everything is the same. But I was beside myself and um, the deputies thought I was going to kill myself. They they locked me into a room and had put, put me on a type of a suicide watch because I was so despondent that uh, that she passed away. In contrast, Dan Caceres thought it was all, it was all good. He didn't seem to be uh, concerned in the least and thought it, and he was making snide comments about uh, about Dawn. What sort of comments do we know? Yeah, he called her terrible names, and I can't repeat them because it's I just can't do it on a national radio show. I'm sorry, this Understood. is my friend, and I'm just not going to dignify what he said. Uh, Dan Caceres and Mark Bennett are criminals. They've broken the law, and they, they are responsible for Dawn's death, regardless of how it happened. And I just can't believe that they've gotten away with it for this long. What was the official cause of death? Uh, alcohol poisoning. They said that she basically drank herself to death. She had a, just a very large amount of alcohol in her system. You, you, you knew her. Um, I don't know how well, but did you ever witness um, this type of behavior, you know, massive alcohol intake or anything like that? I think it's very suspicious that she died the day she was supposed to testify and people have speculated of how she died or her apartment was very neat and there was no, she did not vomit. It's very unusual, the circumstances of her death. However, being honest with you, I think she struggled uh, after this whole mess and she was put in this terrible situation. I know that she struggled and I'm, I, I have to say that I think this really bothered her greatly. And I'm sure there were times where she, um, you know, engaged in, in excess alcohol consumption. So I, I have to say that this is a terrible tragedy that the government caused. And I just don't know why it's never been investigated or how the government has gotten away with this because it's not just her death, but the circumstances around her death, the obstruction of justice, the witness intimidation. I mean, can you imagine, Richard, if I went to a government witness and threatened them, what would happen? Or if I told a government witness not to come to court and you better go out of town? I mean, all hell would break loose. I would be indicted again. But the government does this all the time. And what happened is outrageous. And 
Dawn was very upset about all of these things that I'm describing, not just because of what they did to me, but because of all of these hundreds and hundreds of people that were prosecuted by this task force. So you won the state case. Right. But still you you served a decade in federal prison. Right. A fair right, a fair judge which Don Nugent is a prosecutor. And so his desk should be not in the center where the judge is just go sit with the prosecutors. A fair judge would order a hearing to say, wait a minute, what happened with Dawn Pacella? And what happened with Catherine Clover recanting her testimony and other government witnesses that recanted their testimony? And how did this guy get 302s? And we're going to have a hearing to find out why there's two trials on the same charges, two months apart with opposite results on 59 counts. So a fair judge would be alarmed. And so that's really the question in America. Do we have a law enforcement system and a justice system that actually administers justice fairly? Or do these judges just cover for the prosecutors? And your listeners know the answer to this. this these judges cover up misconduct. And they, I didn't even ask to be released from jail. I just asked for a hearing. I asked for five hours of time in federal court so I could present the same proof of innocence that I used at the second trial prosecuted by the same task force on the same charges. And I asked the judge to order a proper inquiry into not only Dawn's death, but what the government was doing, wiring up an administrative assistant, a young lady in the prosecutor's office and turning her into an undercover operative and having her donate money towards our legal fees. This is completely illegal. And it was all proven by transcripts and exhibits and statements from Dawn's parents that they came forward. And yet, despite all of that, Don Nugent, the federal judge and other judges until very recently simply refused to let me present the same proof of innocence that I had in my jail locker for 10 years. Where is Judge Daniel Gall in all this, the, the, the judge in the state case, the state trial? Judge Gall, has, judge Gall has stated that I'm innocent, and he wrote a letter that I was wrongfully incarcerated, and he gave me permission to include that in court filings. And about a year ago, we had a miracle. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals, because of Judge Gall's letter and because of the statements that Dawn's family provided, basically issued a ruling that said, wait a minute, wait a minute, the federal government can't possess evidence in the U.S. attorney's office, shift it over to a federally funded task force, which is in a different building, and then say they don't know anything about it. And the FBI agent who admitted listening to the tapes that Don made, he said, well, yeah, I listened to them, but then I sent them to the task force and I don't have them. The, ju- the court said, absolutely not. And that was Judge Bebas, who was appointed in 2017. Uh, by the president. Uh, And then they appointed this big law firm, Covington, to do this legal filing on my behalf. And they basically made this big filing about all these games the government was playing with the task force. And the response, the Justice Department's response was that they've made material misrepresentations in my case about evidence. And then I was released from jail. About uh, what, a, a year and a half, two years early? Yes, I would still be in jail for a couple more years in federal jail. And without Dawn, I would have lost the second trial and had a concurrent uh, consecutive, not a concurrent sentence, because Judge Gall said, look, if you go to trial and lose, I'm going to I'm going to tack some serious time onto your federal sentence if I think you're wasting my time in court for two months. So I would be in jail for probably 
12 or 15 more years, except that Dawn came forward and said, we uh, can't allow this to stand. We have to get this evidence of innocence, not just you, but all these other defendants, too. We've got to get it presented in court. So meanwhile, you're sitting in your apartment in Cleveland with an ankle bracelet. Uh, Yes. What's what's next? Well, we've got a filing going in in Erie that is asking the uh, Justice Department to be sanctioned for lying about evidence in my case. Uh, The judge in Erie seems very upset and very alarmed because she ruled against me for many years based on these false statements by the government. So, for instance, uh, Mark Bennett and Arvin Clark, the detective, they've lied repeatedly in court. They said the task force didn't get federal funding when it did. They said the task force didn't house federal evidence when we found FBI documents that they brought boxes of evidence to the task force. We've just repeatedly proven them to be liars in federal court filings. And I think they've just continued to double down on the misconduct. And I'm sure you've heard this, this, the uh, old saying, the first rule of holes is to stop digging. But because they've dug their heels in and they've just doubled down on the misconduct and they're willing to say or do anything to preserve a conviction and not admit they're wrong, that these prosecutors will say or do anything, hide evidence, wire up their secretary, use perjured testimony, hide the 302, shift evidence to different offices, anything. Instead of the culture inside of these offices is you don't admit a mistake. You cover for each other. If someone else commits misconduct, we don't say anything. And the judges that are mostly former prosecutors have generally allowed this type of nonsense to go on unchecked. Where's Dan Caceres today? Dan Caceres is the assistant Ohio attorney general. And he is continuing to prosecute cases and he's continuing to use the same illegal underhanded tactics. And if your listeners have time, I encourage them to Google him and see. There was a case called Peter Beck, where he lied about evidence and the conviction was largely vacated. I mean, there's just a continuing crime spree by this prosecutor. I've called some of the reporters and asked that they cover him. Why do you report everything he says without question? Why don't you do a profile on him? Why don't you look into some of his cases? Well, we're too busy. We can't do it. These prosecutors commit misconduct over and over and over again. They lose computers. They play the same games. It's the same playbook over and over again, intimidating defense witnesses, bullying people into pleading guilty. It's just the same nonsense. Mark Bennett got an award for mortgage fraud prosecutions. And the government issues press releases that said that I was convicted in federal court, and they never put that there was a second trial by the same prosecution team with an opposite result. So they just continue to make false statements publicly about these mortgage cases. And incidentally, the government had an obligation to withdraw this bank testimony. When these banks paid all that money and made those lender settlements, they should have withdrawn their false testimony in these criminal trials, or at a minimum, tracked this restitution and said, well, wait a minute, if the bank admits that they're not a victim, but are a criminal and pays all this money, why should indigent people in jail be sending money every month to these banks? But that's what's been going on. And and how many others like you are still languishing in prison or and and making these monthly payments to the uh, the, the county prosecutor? Yeah, there are people still in jail and there's at least hundreds, probably thousands of people across the country that are making these nonsensical restitution payments to these defunct subprime lenders that aren't 
in business anymore. And by and large, the government is retaining this money. This is a money grab. And incidentally, restitution is supposed to go to the victim. That's not forfeiture. Forfeiture is when they seize assets that you bought with illegal money. Restitution is supposed to go to these victims, but these banks aren't victims and the government doesn't want to admit it. So they're more than happy to continue to collect money and use it as essentially a prosecutorial slush fund. And we do have some of these ledgers and do, we do have some of these documents of what these people are actually doing with the money. I mean, the irony is that the government and the prosecutor's office is committing money laundering. They're the ones who are accusing us of doing it, but they're actually taking this restitution, not following the court orders and sending it where there's, it's supposed to go, but using it to buy airline tickets and pay for hotel rooms. And um, what of Don Pacella's family? Are they hoping that her death will be investigated? I feel so awful for Dawn and her family. And even though I was in jail, uh, you know, my folks used to say, or my friends used to say, well, Tony, at least we know we'll see you one day. And I can't tell you how devastating this has been for me, for her family. It's awful. And Dawn was a brilliant, wonderful person, a very kind person. She was fun to spend time with. My friends loved her. And it's it's really, it's, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I have nightmares about it. It's just the most awful thing that the government has done this to such a wonderful lady and gotten away with it for this long, uh, in this amount of time. And so we're on a mission. I don't feel like I'm fighting for myself to win my case. I feel like I'm fighting for Dawn. I'm trying to continue, even though I'm not as smart as she is, but I'm trying to continue what she wanted which was to get these cases thrown out and we're fighting for her and these other people that were wrongfully prosecuted, not only in Cleveland, but throughout the country, these mortgage fraud cases were the flavor of the month. And there was quite a lot of people bullied into pleading guilty that I think they're wrongfully convicted. So what are you hoping best possible outcome for, for Tony Viola, that, that your record will be expunged? Will there be restitution for you? Well, I guess what I want is I want Dan Caceres and Mark Bennett to go to jail. I mean, why do we allow prosecutors to break the law? I mean, what, what is wrong in this country that, that instead of admitting a mistake, that they actually would do all these illegal things? These people should be disbarred and indicted. This is not right that the, that the country, the country pays for this. The taxpayers, every time they get a paycheck and there's a deduction, these people are public servants. And in the name of the people, they're breaking the law. So sure, selfishly, would I like my name cleared? Of course. I could never get the last 15 years of my life back. I could never get my business back the way it was before. But what needs to happen is this can't continue in our country. We have to say that if you're in law enforcement and you break the law, you're going to jail. You cannot break the law with impunity and get promoted. Right now, the culture from top to bottom in the FBI and these prosecutors' offices is to cover up misconduct. People in these jobs just don't do the right thing. Dawn was an idealist. She was a true believer in justice. She couldn't stand by and watch this illegal activity and destruction of computers. They forged her name on evidence logs, shifting evidence around. This nonsense bothered her, but everyone else in the task force, it was just another day at the office. Nobody had any problems with it, and the judges allow it. It's outrageous. 
So I'm hoping that this, that all of this bad that happened to me personally could be somehow turned into good, that no other person ever faces this experience. And I think the government should apologize. A responsible person in, at the Justice Department should issue a public apology to Dawn Pacella's family. I, I, that's what I want. I want an apology to her family for what went on in this case. It's outrageous. Are you expecting a ruling imminently? We do think that Judge Neary is likely to hold, this is Judge Baxter, that she's likely to hold the government accountable for what they've said because they, the Justice Department said they committed misrepresentations in court. So we do believe this is going to work. There are also other proceedings ongoing in my case outside of the evidence part of the case, including about restitution and prosecutors who've covered up including Justin Herdman, who wants to be the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., but he's up to his eyeballs in misconduct in my case here. And so what we are trying to do is press all advantage in court to get courts to find, make findings of fact and rulings that there was misconduct, that there was proof of innocence that was uh, suppressed, and that all these cases should be reopened. Tony, how can people find out more about this case? Well, you're always welcome to check out freetonyviola.com. We've put together, this is my friends while I was in jail, put together a website that sort of was, gives people an ongoing update. There's blogs when there's new court uh, rulings. And also my good friend, Susan Alt. I think um, a lot of people may have heard her on Coast to Coast or may be familiar with her books, but she's working on an eight-episode uh, miniseries called Liar Loans. And she's got uh, a site called uh, Nemesis Law where she's looking uh, to expose how the government has broken the law to put innocent people in jail and, and grab restitution for people. So we would love the chance to hear from any of your listeners with suggestions, ideas, feedback. Uh, please send me a, my contact information is on the free TonyViola.com website. And Susan Alt would love to hear from everybody. And uh, we welcome all. We want a big tent. We want everyone to feel welcome to tell their story of injustice or if they have suggestions or ideas, just like you do on your shows where you uh, welcome the listeners and, and enjoy feedback and, and, and spirited discussions. We want to emulate what you've done and do the same thing and offer people the chance to engage with us and share their thoughts. Free Tony Viola, that's V-I-O-L-A, Tony, T-O-N-Y, Viola, V-I-O-L-A, freetonyviola.com. Uh, Tony, thank you for spending some time. It's a, it's a fascinating case, and I, uh, I pray for a positive outcome. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for the opportunity to address your listeners and uh, to share our story. I'm very grateful to you personally and for all of the folks out there that are listening. So thank you very much. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. That time of the week to welcome back Colleen Forgas, our nutritional therapist and the manager at our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hello once again, Colleen. Hi, Richard. I'm feeling electrified today. <laughs> Fantastic. I was going to ask you about that. Every time I take my boys out, to, they, they play tennis, they play hockey, we go skating, skiing. They're always they're always bothering me for a sports drink. They're A, they're expensive, and B, I don't even know what's in those things. Anything on the Full Script Dispensary to replace these sports drinks? Yes, Richard. A product called 40,000 Volts by Trace Minerals Research. It's an electrolyte concentrate that you can add to your own beverage. So you can just put it in water 
And rather than purchasing something that we don't know what it's, you know, all the chemicals that are in those common sports drinks, this will allow you to make your own. So it's really great in relieving muscle cramps, including nighttime leg cramps that people often get. And for anyone that might have a reverse osmosis water system, it helps to put back some of the minerals that those systems remove from the water. Oh, that's a great idea. So it yeah. comes in a powder, 40,000 volts. That's right. Fantastic. Thanks again, Colleen. Thank you, Richard. To get your 40,000 volts, go to strangeplanet.ca. Then click on the full script dispensary button. All orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship absolutely free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, part one of a two-part series on secret government UFO programs and the occult. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.